0: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Jacqueline Smeaton. I am um, Senior VP of Medical Affairs with Emerson Ecologics, and I'm so excited because today we have Dr. Michael Danzinger here with us to talk about heart disease. Um, Dr. Danzinger works with Boston Heart. He's been there about 10 years now as their Medical Director of Patient Wellness, Um, and he's got really extensive experience, particularly in cardiovascular disease, which is a specialty of Boston Heart Diagnostics. Um, Dr. Danzinger is the founding director also of the Diabetes Reversal Program at Tufts Medical Center and an assistant professor at Tufts University School of Medicine here in Boston, and um, is also on the Council of Directors for True Health Initiative, which is a leading voice on nutrition in lifestyle medicine. For those of you who don't know, he's like doing been doing a lot on lifestyle interventions, particularly around cardiometabolic disease and um published comparison of the Atkins Ornish Weight Watchers and Zone Diets for Weight Loss and Cardiac Risk Reduction in JAMA. So he's got a lot of experience, very well cited, um, and I'm very excited to hear from him today. So Dr. Danzinger, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much, Jacqueline. Thanks for that nice introduction. And I'm excited to give this presentation today, which is all about beating heart disease. So I'm, I've, Dedicated my medical career to lifestyle and disease prevention, especially cardiovascular disease, the leading killer in men and women in the United States and throughout the world, and related conditions like diabetes, obesity, metabolic syndrome, etc. And um, I envision um, that you know we as a medical community have the potential to really turn around the trends and the epidemics of these conditions. And these are largely lifestyle diseases, which means we have the opportunity to um, really make a big difference. You know, up In principle, up to 80% of heart disease is preventable um, by lifestyle change but it also means it's a very difficult task ahead. And so I'm I'm pleased to have, you know, focused my career on lifestyle and reversing these preventable diseases. And it's my privilege to present, you know, my viewpoints and the evidence um, that, um, you know, um, clinicians have been using to help uncover and reverse cardiovascular disease risk factors. So, heart disease runs in my family. My grandfather died of a heart attack and dropped dead in his early 70s, in when I was 11 years old. And his son, my father, um, developed heart disease at the same age as his father. But unlike you know my my grandfather, you know dad lived through his heart attack, um, because. Um, Dad had been making a lot of, um, you know, lifestyle efforts and taking, um, you know, preventive efforts. That because he he learned the hard way um, from his father's death that there's much can be done to beat heart disease. And I'm learning from them to do what I can for myself and for my patients. So the main advance I want to focus on today is in the testing. So I'm talking about blood testing because it advances prevention in very important ways that I'd like to convey during this presentation. And so, you know, by way of analogy, you know, stethoscopes are very important today, but when you want to look deep, when you when you want to know more and look deeper at the heart, we have echocardiography. And... X-rays are still important today, but when you need to look closer, we have MRI, and the same applies to blood testing for cardiovascular. So, the lip, you know, the standard lipid profile that's done 97% of the time is still important. But when you need to look deeper, which is um, very many patients, we have advanced testing. And you can just see so much better. And standard testing misses modifiable risk factors in many different ways and for many different reasons. So some of these include the fact that the basic lipids often look normal despite the presence of atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease. And statin drugs often obscure LDL particle abnormalities. Furthermore, abnormal HDL metabolism is commonly overlooked. Inflammation is commonly overlooked. The source of elevated cholesterol is not properly considered. And testing, like what I'm gonna talk about, like what we do offer through Boston Heart, uncovers this hidden risk. So the key clinical priorities that are well recognized by preventive experts are um, the importance of minimizing the atherogenic burden in each patient, optimizing reverse cholesterol transport, preventing diabetes and reducing insulin resistance and hyperglycemia and decreasing vascular inflammation as a result of those upstream efforts. And so I'd like to spend some time talking about each of those very important categories and how the testing can make a difference. So let's really focus on minimizing atherogenic burden. So many of you in the audience already recognize that low-density lipoprotein LDL particles are primary drivers of atherosclerosis. I didn't say they're the primary driver of atherosclerosis. Smoking, hypertension, hyperglycemia are all primary drivers of atherosclerosis. But these LDL particles are crucially important and are major drivers, primary drivers of atherosclerosis. And the concentration of these LDL particles has a lot to do with the rate at which a patient is developing plaque. But not all LDL particles are equally atherogenic. So the small, dense LDL particles are much more dangerous and atherogenic for multiple reasons. These smaller particles are stickier, they have higher affinity for the endothelial and and lumen, they're more prone to oxidation, and on and on. Um, In most cases, about a third of the particles could be categorized as small dense, and it's not either or, there's a whole you know, size range of LDL particles, but some patients have much more than their share of the small dense LDL particles, maybe up to 60% of their LDL particles might be the small dense one. And so measuring LDL cholesterol does not tell the whole story. So for example, let's imagine a patient with an LDL cholesterol of 120. Is that distributed into a lot of small LDL particles or a smaller number, a a lower concentration of large LDL particles? If you're not looking for that, then I think you're missing something very important. So how much of the LDL cholesterol comes from the small dense particles? Let me show you how important this this can be. And so in the ERIC study with over 11,000 participants followed over time, when they looked at the small dense LDL particle concentration quartiles lined up very well with the um, you know likelihood of an adverse cardiovascular event. In contrast, when you look at the concentration of large buoyant LDL particles, did not track at all with the likelihood of a cardiovascular event. Um, from the same study, when you look at the correlation between the concentration of the ldl ch- cholesterol versus the small dense cholesterol the correlation is around 0.5 now if the correlation was close to 1 then you wouldn't then knowing one tells you about the other but because the correlation is so middle of the road just because you know the ldl cholesterol concentration does not mean that you've got a good handle on the small dense LDL cholesterol. Let me show you an, another example. On the right is a percentile plot from the same study. And there's a little red circle there um, indicating an individual patient with who's in the 20th percentile for LDL cholesterol, which is awesome. But that same individual is in the 80th percentile for small dense LDL cholesterol, which is a problem. And all of those individuals, maybe a third of them, are, have, much, have more small dense LDL than you would otherwise have predicted if you just took your best guess from the LDL cholesterol. And so it's important. Also, it's important to understand that it's the unhealthy sugars and starches that raise the percentage of particles that are the small dense ones. Let me show you. So, you know, looking at multiple studies, this research group showed that the higher your percentage of calories from carbohydrate, the higher your proportion of small dense LDL particles known as the, you know, phenotype B. So as you lower your dietary carbohydrate intake, especially the highly refined sugars and starches, you um, uh, you, you consistently expect to see, a change, a reduction in the proportion of particles that are the small, dense ones. So let's talk about measuring the effect of dietary fats in the blood. And so we all recognize that there's, you know, healthy fats and unhealthy fats. And although it's an oversimplification, the higher the, um, you know, the melting point of the fat, um, the more saturated it is then the more likely it is to to be problematic. Um, the saturated fats interfere with the cycling of the LDL receptor, slowing down clearance of the, of the LDL particles, especially the small dense LDL particles. And um, it's helpful to do blood testing for the range of fatty acids in the blood. And so Boston Heart clients, you know, routinely are measuring, you know, um, in selected patients, saturated fat levels, trans fat levels, monounsaturated fat, a variety of omega-6 fatty acids, a variety of omega-3 fatty acids and ratios. And to a large extent, the dietary intake drives the levels of these fatty acids in the blood. However, it's more complicated than that. In some cases, there's endogenous production um, especially of saturated fatty acid that re- reflects, um, you know, in you know elevated, you know, um, adiposity and fatty liver that drive saturated fat. Um, it's important to recognize that all of these saturated fatty acid levels can be optimized um, largely through dietary change and lifestyle efforts. So it responds well to, um, you know, the right eating strategy. Also, it's important to consider if you have elevated LDL cholesterol, is that mainly coming from food and intestinal absorption, or is that coming mainly from um, synthesis from your own liver? So at Boston Heart, we have a, a test that we call the cholesterol balance test that looks at cholesterol production and cholesterol absorption. In this particular patient's case, the problem is not with overproduction of cholesterol from the liver. The problem is with overabsorption of cholesterol from the intestinal tract. And so this is the case in about a third of the patients. And it's important to know because the causes and the treatments um, differ. So for patients with overabsorption issues, they're, they respond much better than other patients two efforts to block that so dietary cholesterol reduction is most important and most helpful in these overabsorbers the the effect of dietary fiber or plant stanols which compete for binding site in the intestinal tract or azetamide prescription all of those blocking cholesterol absorption blocking techniques work best in those who are the overabsorbers in contrast, when you're aiming to block cholesterol synthesis, this is usually um, because of, of you know the 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 main way to do this is to reduce fatty liver via weight loss. Also, these patients respond well to reducing their refined sugar and starch. Um, red yeast rice, um, you know, blocks um, cholesterol production in the liver, and statin drugs. Also of note that. When a patient is taking an effective cholesterol synthesis blocker, um, the um, you can see that in the blood testing, and it will push it into the green. And so, you know, a patient who's compliant with an effective approach for blocking cholesterol synthesis is going to have normalization of their cholesterol synthesis markers. It's also important to understand about the existence of lipoprotein little a. So this is an LDL-like particle that is highly atherogenic. It's an independent cardiovascular risk factor. It ranges dramatically from person to person. Um, Maybe it ranges from a a level of one to 300 milligrams per deciliter. And unless you look for it, you don't know. And um, it's of value to recognize this, it it runs in family, it's largely genetically determined and there's clinical trials looking at various approaches to um, the various approaches measuring the um, uh, outcomes that result from lowering lipoprotein little a. In the meantime, um, niacin is known to be effective for lowering LP little a by 30% and other approaches And we need more outcome data to know know, the extent to which these um, therapies will help patients. And it's crucial to optimize everything you can improve when you have a patient who has elevated levels of LP little a. And so um, knowing the level adds to the risk assessment. It helps identify families where the risk is high. Um, Knowing it, you know, When a patient knows it, it often stimulates greater vigilance on their part, um, it stimulates providers to be darn sure to modifi- of optimizing all modifiable risk factors as well. So changing gears to optimizing reverse cholesterol transport. So HDL cholesterol, everyone knows HDL cholesterol is the good cholesterol. But it's not so simple. So HDL cholesterol levels are very good for predicting future CVD risk. However, unfortunately, changes in HDL cholesterol levels have not been reliable indicators of change in cardiovascular risk. So HDL cholesterol levels are poor surrogate for what I think we're really after, which is normal HDL metabolism. So when I say normal HDL metabolism, what I'm talking about is effective reverse cholesterol transport, effective cholesterol efflux from tissues to macrophages, an absence of dysfunctional HDL particle, and a healthy distribution of HDL particle subpopulations. So just to review, HDL particles in the bloodstream mature, and they go from small disc Shaped particles to large spherical particles. And although this is an oversimplification of something that's metabolically quite complex, I like to picture, imagine these like apples ripening on a tree as they pick up cholesterol from the bloodstream and from the arteries. But unfortunately, HDL particle maturation is often. Um, de- slowed or not fully um, occurring because sugars and unhealthy starches delay or prevent the full maturation of HDL particles. So we can see this by looking at the subpopulations of HDL particles. Boston Heart uses an approach called the HDL map, which uses electrophoresis so that you can see the proportion and concentrations of the um, full range of HDL particles. And the ones that are most important, the ones that are most predictive of cardiovascular outcomes are the large particles. We call those the alpha one particles because of their um, uh, um, where they appear on the electrophoresis. So this particular patient has an abnormally low level of, level of the large um, alpha one HDL particles. And that's what we want to restore in the patient. And so there's some information data about the effect of various weight loss diets on HDL maturation. Um, Many years ago, I published a study in JAMA in 2005, where we randomly assigned 160 people with metabolic syndrome to one of the four eating strategies, the Atkins, Zone, Weight Watchers, or Ornish eating plans, which range from very low carb, to very high um, carb, low fat. And we saw that um, although each of those eating strategies produce similar degrees of weight loss and similar improvements in hdl cholesterol around 10 percent improvements increases in hdl cholesterol they had very different effects on the large hdl particles and so the lower carb diets the atkinson the zone had 30 to 35 percent increases in the recovery of the large hdl whereas um you know the the high carb low-fat diet was least effective for restoring, normalizing these large HDL particles. Here we looked at, um, you know, the um, increase in HDL particles in the same population and showed that regardless of the eating strategy, it's really when you get to around 30% of dietary um, calories from from carb or less where you see the most robust um, increase in um, large HDL particles and restoration of normal HDL metabolism. And you can see here that it's sort of a linear relationship between the degree of carbohydrate restriction versus the normalization of HDL particles and HDL metabolism. Here I show in the same population that the change in HDL cholesterol was not a good predictor of the change in alpha 1 particles here in the red oval I show all of the individuals who had zero change in their HDL cholesterol over the course of one year but their change in the large HDL particles was all over the map ranging from a you know 20% worsening to a you know a, you know a 20% improvement and so unless you're measuring it you don't know what's happening to someone's distribution of HDL particles Switching gears to preventing diabetes and reducing insulin resistance. So as we all recognize, there's been a you know a wave, an epidemic, a pandemic of diabetes, type two diabetes throughout the United States and the world. And at this point, less than half of the adults in the U.S. have normal glucose. 15% have diabetes, mostly type two. Another 38% have pre-diabetes. And when we look in those, um, individuals over age 65, only 22% have normal glucose levels. The rest have elevated glucose, fasting glucose, or A1C indicating prediabetes or diabetes. And, um, you know, I've dedicated to my, my career to uncovering and reversing that. Um, at Boston Heart, we use, you know, a range of, of blood tests. To really get a handle on where someone is in this risk continuum, and so we look at hemoglobin A1C and glucose. Of course, we look at insulin, glycated protein, adiponectin, um, and use the HOMA calculation to calculate the insulin resistance and or the insulin sensitivity and beta cell activity. So let me um, speak a little bit more about a couple of these. So. One test we have at Boston Heart is called the the pre-diabetes assessment, and it's for patients who have pre-diabetes, and it really gives an indication of the rate at which someone's accelerating from pre-diabetes toward type 2 diabetes. And it's based on data from the Framingham Offspring Studies, and it uses seven parameters the body mass index, the family history of diabetes, whether someone's using statin or niacin or not, um, their levels of triglyceride, glucose, glycated albumin, and and adiponectin, which were all found to be independent predictors using linear regression modeling with a C statistic of 0.92, which is very high indicating a, a, a reliable predictability of determining someone's likelihood of progressing from prediabetes to type two diabetes over a 10 year period. Um, near and dear to my heart is early recognition of when someone's losing the beta cells. So in the pancreas are the islet of Langerhans, on the left we see, under you know a microscopic fluorescence view of a normal islet of Langerhans with a few thousand you know insulin-producing cells, um, and on the right we see uh, an islet of Langerhans from a patient with type two diabetes, and you can see the cytoarchitecture is, um, in the the um, architecture of the islet is. Um, uh, very sickly looking with with big holes and, you know, an absence of insulin producing cells, dysfunction of insulin production. And so, you know, we see type 2 diabetes when there's about 40% of the islets um, remaining and we see prediabetes usually at about 60% of, of um, you know, beta cell function. But we want to catch it much earlier. Let's not wait until there's hyperglycemia before we can reverse beta cell destruction. So, you know, in this graph, it shows that, you know, for over the course of someone's, um, you know, life, they start out with normal beta cell function. But if they develop insulin resistance, Typically, from obesity, we see that the beta cells become hyperactive, and so the beta cell activity increases um, with, you know, in proportion to the insulin resistance. And then, unfortunately, after many years, the beta cells just can't keep up, and they start to lose the ability to to com- compensate for the insulin resistance and then you start to develop prediabetes and hyperglycemia and then at the point where you've lost 40% or, or you know lost 60% of your beta cell function we see you know diabetes and i wanted to create a test that would show you where where are you on this continuum something that could help people in all stages of diabetes risk and so at Boston Heart we we worked hard to create what's called the beta cell function and risk index and you know, about a third of the patients are at these at this increased risk. About a third of the patients are in the borderline and about a third of the patients are in the green and the optimal. And it gives an interpretation about the, um, you know, current status of, of their, um, you know, diabetes risk and provides considerations to reduce, you know, based on whether the patient has insulin resistance, or whether most of the problem is just from beta cell dysfunction and you know there's a wide variety of treatments available and you can use this beta cell function risk index to measure improvements as a result of the various treatments but of course weight loss is the best way to handle this and whether it's through um, you know there's different methods for weight loss we know that surgery um, reverses diabetes very quickly and reliably and we know that there's weight loss medications that can do that but my favorite one is to try to address the underlying cause which is the dietary intake strategy and it's difficult to um, coach patients and help them make you know changes in lifestyle but with coaching, um, many patients can really reverse their um, diabetes risk and recover a lot of the beta cell function. The beta cells regenerate and um, as patients lose weight and eliminate the underlying causes and including the insulin resistance, um, we believe they regenerate you know, much of their beta cells. And so we're not curing diabetes here, but we're driving it into remission as often as we, as we can switching gears to decreasing vascular inflammation so atherosclerosis is an inflammatory disease and there's many you know drivers of the atherosclerosis process but a common pathway is inflammation. And so we don't try to reverse the inflammation itself. We use the inflammation and oxidation markers to gain a handle on where we're at in the atherosclerosis process. And as we reverse the underlying causes, we see improvements in these markers. And so the main ones that Boston Heart offers are CRP, um, interleukin-6, LPPLA-2, Myeloperoxidase, fibrinogen, oxidized phospholipid on ApoB particles, and trimethylamine oxide (TMAO). So the inflammatory markers suggest the atherosclerosis progression rate, and there's you know low-grade continuous inflammation in you know you know driven by you know the 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 atherosclerosis process. And so if you've eliminated other causes of you know, acute or chronic inflammation, then, you know, the markers become more and more helpful. Some markers are non-specific and others are more specific. So let's talk about that a little bit. So um, CRP, high sensitivity C-reactive protein is secreted by the liver in response to systemic inflammation. It's not specific to atherosclerosis. LPPLA-2, is secreted by inflammatory cells in response to oxidized phospholipid particles in the arterial wall. I love this marker. It really um, is specific to atherosclerosis. Myeloperoxidase is secreted by activated inflammatory cells. Elevations may signal vulnerable plaque. Fibrinogen indicates advanced or acute inflammation and hypercoagulability. And so these markers are complementary. just because you know one doesn't mean you know them all. And so CRP, I think of that as signaling near-term inflammation rate. It addresses the rate at which plaque is accumulating and it responds quickly to lifestyle changes or other treatments that get at these root causes of atherosclerosis. LPPLA-2, as I mentioned, signals the atherogenic burden overall. Myeloperoxidase in a patient with cardiovascular disease and known plaque um, might signal hot plaque that um, you know unstable plaque that's at high risk over the next you know three months or so. Um, so you keep an eye on that individual. Do everything you can to minimize CBD risk in those patients. Measure the you know the myeloperoxidase serially to make sure it's going in the right direction. Oxidized phospholipid also adds information above and beyond the LDL cholesterol or the LPPLA2 or the LP little a. optimize all other risk factors in these patients with oxidized phospholipid in order to see improvements there. In the past decade, we've been increasingly um, knowledgeable about the role of the intestinal bacteria on health and longevity. We know that atherosclerosis um, is, is part of the, um, intestinal bacteria are part of the atherosclerosis um, in ways that we're still learning about, um, but it's an important area and you know, in the decade ahead, I think we're going to know a lot more and have a, a better handle. We're at the tip of the iceberg. One of the thing, one of the areas that's become increasingly clear is that trimethylamine production is likely um, causally related to atherosclerosis in certain individuals. And we know that choline and carnitine from red meat and egg yolks and and certain other sources um, is acted upon by certain intestinal bacteria that may be prevalent in some individuals more than others to turn that um, those precursors into trimethylamine. And that gets absorbed in the portal circulation to the liver and in certain individuals with the flavin monooxygenase 3 that's converted into TMAO in the bloodstream. And, um, you know, it, it's... Um, Associated and likely, you know, to be causally, we know in animals it's causally related to atherosclerosis and to adverse outcomes um, on a variety of organs. So, um, you know, meta-analyses of multiple studies, you know, convincingly demonstrate that the risk of mortality is related to the level of trimethylamine oxide in your blood in a dose-response relationship. And we know also that changes in TMAO levels can occur quickly within two or four weeks, can be normalized by making dietary changes in individuals who have elevated levels. And so certain people out there are sensitive to the effects of basically red meat and other sources of choline and carnitine, and this can be normalized quickly as a result of dietary changes. Um, I'd like to speak briefly about genetic testing, which can inform management. So um, Boston Heart strives to be a leader in genetics of cardiovascular disease and lipid disorders. We currently offer 11 genetic tests with a variety of um, you know, insights, and I'd like to focus. So some of these are related to hypercoagulability and clotting risk others are on the you know the effect of of statins and, and the aspirin a risk of uh, atrial fibrillation um, or premature disease um folate metabolism um so focusing on three one of one of them one of our genetic tests gives clinicians insights about the risk or or likely presence of statin-induced myopathy. So we know a lot of patients discontinue their statin therapy, or maybe red yeast rice, or other um, cholesterol-blocking medications, production blocking blockers, um, because of you know myopathy and symptoms. And it can be helpful to know whether the patient. You know, you can measure CK levels. They're not always going to be, um, you know. The, you know, a patient could still have myopathy um, you know, with normal CK levels. Um, knowing the the whether they're at increased genetic risk and about a third of the patients have a genetic variant that puts them at increased risk, four and a half fold um, increased genetic risk of statin-induced myopathy. And so knowing whether that's present or absent in a patient with with concerns can be very helpful. and there's clinical trials Showing that this type of genotype, um, you know, informed um, statin therapy um, produces um, greater um, ed, um, levels of LDL reduction and better, um, you know, adherence in patients. And so that's one of the genetic tests that can be helpful in managing patients on statins. Um, another um, uh, genetic test. That as value as the MTHFR, which has six common variants with differing methylation efficiencies. So, um, MTHFR enzyme is involved in methylation, including methylation of DNA. And, you know, some people are only work going at, you know, 50% or 25% efficiency of their methylation enzymes, and it's likely that in those individuals who have, um, you know, in suboptimal methylation, that methylated folate supplementation um, can um, have a, a valuable role. Other patients have normal. and so, you know, I happen to be a double heterozygote, estimated to be at 61% methylation efficiency. I take methylated folate for that reason. I think I have more to gain the, by by doing that and nothing to lose. Um, also, um, haptoglobin is of value in patients with type 2 diabetes. So we know in general about one third of people have a haptoglobin variant that um, that interferes with, that, that increases the risk of oxidation in the bloodstream. And in patients with diabetes, type one or type two, we know that the combination of the haptoglobin, 2-2 variant um, in the setting of hyperglycemia accelerates um, the risk of atherosclerosis and adverse CVD outcomes. And we also know that in randomized trials, those individuals, who receive vitamin E um, benefit if they have the haptoglobin 2.2, but not the others. So the combination of diabetes and the haptoglobin 2.2, which is in about 35 to 40% of individuals with, with diabetes, are the ones who benefit from vitamin E 400 IU per day. So which patients to test? well i'd propose testing and it's under the clinician's judgment of course but when the clinician's diagnostic impression of the cvd risk will change when the patient's understanding of their cvd risk will change when the patient's or the clinician's urgency to reduce risk is effective when the results might influence the dietary strategy or the intensity of lifestyle modification or the medication or supplement selection and the dose intensity or the frequency of follow-up. If any of those are likely to be influenced by the testing, then I think it's makes sense to do the testing and so the patients who benefit the most i think are those whose lives will improve from the testing those who would not otherwise be motivated to make lifestyle changes or patients who need to know whether hidden risk is present or patients that increase risk due to known cvd or metabolic syndrome or diabetes etc it's not enough just to uncover hidden risk. We need to be good at helping the patients modify their risk, starting with lifestyle. And so Boston Heart strives to um, provide something ultra personalized for the patient. And we have an algorithm that uses a combination of blood tests and the patient's health history and the patient's individual um, preferences to create something that's ultra personalized so I don't have time to get into this in detail but um, Boston art uses a questionnaire that is very brief and patients and providers who order Boston art testing have access to all of these tools on the on the on the Boston art patient portal for their patients we offer a range of eating strategies so some individuals are interested in something that's vegan or vegetarian or Mediterranean or carb controlled or paleo or just something that's regular American, but a healthy version. And so we have flexibility in our eating strategies. Um, We use over a hundred different patient attributes to personalize and customize the um, eating strategy and the life plan. A life plan is an electronic document that is 20 pages of full-color, beautiful um, um, document for patients so they understand the rationale and how their eating plan is personalized to them. It provides you know a, a food list of foods to focus on, foods to focus away from, and those borderline foods in between, a seven-day menu based on their food preferences and their eating strategy and their calorie target, and there's links to recipes. We add um, helpful engagement tools and coaching. So we know that again, it's not enough just to give someone a nutrition prescription. Engagement is crucial. And we have Boston Art has a coaching program where patients can um, you know purchase coaching sessions for less than they would pay, you know, for a copay at the doctor's office for. Um, one-on-one sessions with dietitians. Um, we collaborate with Lose It, a well-known food logging program, so the dietitians can see what the patient's eating. We've partnered with Diet ID, invented by Dr. David Katz, um, which is um, a, a, a stream, a, a rapid dietary intake assessment, so the patient can determine, um, and the clinician can determine the overall dietary quality score, and then helps the patient make changes um, to improve that quality score. We've also partnered with a a company called Healy, which has a very innovative um, state-of-the-art phone app, that smartphone app that helps patients, um, you know, really customize their eating strategy and turn it from concept into something that's helpful. So, this is an adherence maximization tool using the Healy app. And all of this is available to um, patients whose clinicians um, use Boston Hearts testing. Does it work? Yes. So, we know that individuals who participate in the lifestyle program and the coaching in particular improve their blood tests more than other patients. So, the the cardiometabolic markers improve about twice as much in individuals who participate in the coaching program. We've also conducted a randomized trial that was published about two years ago, demonstrating that, you know, the more engaged you were with the lifestyle program and the coaching and the food logging, the more you improved your cardiovascular markers. And, Many, many success stories. It's these individual patient success stories that often drive us as clinicians. And it's very gratifying when you and the patient can see the blood test going from red and yellow to green. Um, you know, there's videos that we've um, put online with patient testimonials from former NFL players and from firefighters and police officers and enthusiastic healthcare providers about Boston Heart and Our lifestyle program. And so we know that clinicians and patients can beat heart disease if they have a systematic approach, if the clinician and the patient work together. And that's what drives me to stay excited about my work as a preventive medicine specialist and an innovator at Boston Heart. And um, I'm, I'm excited about the future and feeling ap- optimistic. And I'm gonna finish with this two minute poem that really um, helps convey my optimism about what we as providers can do with patients. And so I call this the heart of the apple. In the heart of the apple, deep in its core, live the seeds of potential with greatness in store. No matter the size, the shape, or the skin, the apple's real treasure resides deep within. The flesh may be perfect or damaged and bruised, but the seeds are still in there, though too rarely used. They could become trees with strong trunks and roots, blossom in springtime, bear splendid fruits. But seeds cannot grow without special care, water and sunshine, soil and air. And so it is with people, you see, treasures of nature waiting the key that unlocks the spirit, the spark, the seeds, unleashing the passion to realize great deeds. The best place to seek it, the best place to start is down deep in the core, right at the heart. The heart holds the key to shedding our strife. By making it strong, we live our best life. By working it hard and feeding it right, the body transforms, we reach a new height that frees our potential abilities to fulfill our awaiting destinies. But we all need some help. We all need great teams to strengthen our hearts and live out our dreams. So let's help each other be all we can be. Now let's grow the seeds to our best apple tree. Thank you very much for this opportunity to present today.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Danzinger. This is the first time anyone's ever read a poem on the webinar and it's so beautiful and true. And thank you so much for sharing that.